Good morning. It's good to be here with you this morning. I count it a privilege to stand in the shoes of Pastor Van. He is in Texas today, either in Austin or San Antonio, visiting uh, presidential libraries with Janet. Anyone familiar with this building? This is the This is the Washington Cathedral. This is the Washington Cathedral downtown on Wisconsin Avenue in Massachusetts. How many of you have been there? Been inside the Washington Cathedral? Okay, a few of you have. Let me ask you a couple questions. Question one, how many years did it take to build the Washington Cathedral? Answer? I'm, I'm looking for a congregational response. You know? Um, this is not a Presbyterian church. How many years? I hear 27 over here that's wrong. How many? That's not even on the number. On the. You are correct. 83 years. It started in 1907. They finished in 1990. On the same day, they dedicated it. September 29th. Question two. Washington Cathedral is the second largest cathedral in the world. You only have two choices. False is correct. Okay, Washington Cathedral is the sixth largest cathedral in the world, the second largest in the United States. Question three, the North Rose Window, which depicts the Last Judgment, is the cathedral's largest stained glass window. How large? <laughs> no, 26. There it is. You can measure it. You can measure it there. 26 feet in diameter. How many pieces of stained glass are in the West Rose window? Which depicts creation. I chose this one because it has more pieces of glass in it. No, I don't have the picture of this one. I couldn't tell which was the picture of this one. Did anybody say 10,500? You are correct. More than 10,500. Can you imagine the man that put that one together? And there are 215 stained glass windows in the cathedral. 215. Which leads me to this question. How many rose windows are there in the cathedral? Here's one of them. The front. The answer is three. One represents creation in the West, one the Last Judgment in the North, and the Church Triumphant in the South. Question six, the central Gloria in Excelsis Tower is high, high. how high? Here's what it looks like. Can you imagine standing on that roof? 
It is actually 670 feet, 76 feet above sea level, and it's the highest spot in Washington, D.C. In addition to Woodrow Wilson and Helen Keller, how many people are buried in the cathedral? Would you believe 220? So it's not only a cathedral, it's a cemetery. And this last question. The cathedral boasts perhaps the world's only sculpture of what creepy person on a religious building? Oh, somebody told you. Here's the picture. Now, somebody in the first service thought that this was a Photoshop job. Darth Vader is actually on, I think, the north side of this cathedral. Okay? And this is an actual picture of Darth himself. So we're in Haggai. Why talk about the Washington Cathedral? Because it is a cathedral. Cathedral re reveals the heart of man to build the biggest and the tallest and the best for God's glory. The conclusion is that God is glorified by winning the competition, by having the tallest, the most expensive, the biggest, the most beautiful temple for him to dwell in. And there probably is nothing innately wrong with that motivation. We ought to give God our biggest and our best. But the question comes, what is our best? What is our biggest? What is it that really, honestly glorifies God? We're looking at an Old Testament prophet today whose job it was to motivate people to build a temple that wasn't the biggest. In fact, it was so small it bordered on insignificance. And it wasn't easy to motivate these people because they had started this project with enthusiasm 15 years earlier. And it quit. For years now, they'd gone along with this unfinished project, and every year, it became more and more impossible and less and less worth their effort. One of the problems was that some of the old people had seen Solomon's temple before it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. And when they saw the foundation of the new temple, they actually burst into tears because it was so tiny. Read about it in Ezra. Ezra says the people crying were as loud as the people who were singing for joy because the foundation was laid. They couldn't understand why they should go through all this effort to build something that wouldn't make a statement. After all, Solomon had the biggest, maybe not the biggest, but the best and the most expensive probably one of the wonders of the world at that time. And they didn't understand why God would be interested in his people building an architectural nothing. So how do you motivate people to build such a thing? That's what Haggai is about. So I plan to talk about chapter 1 today and chapter 2 in the next two weeks.
Haggai gave four short messages to his people. The first one is in chapter 1. The other three are in chapter 2. Each message is dated. The first one is August of 520 B.C. The last one, December of the same year, four months later. The first two messages seem to deal with what the people were talking about that was allowing them to quit or not build. The last two messages deal with one day, the significance of the 24th day of the ninth month. So today we look at the first statement of these people in Haggai chapter 1 verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So this message, this first message of Haggai is responding to this statement. It's not the right time. And Haggai has three responses. Response number one, they're using the statement as an excuse. They're using this statement as an excuse. Here's the passage, verses 1 to 4. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehoshadak the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? See, the people claimed to be waiting for the proper time to obey the Lord. Their statement in verse 2 says it's a timing issue. We want to wait for God to give us the high sign. We want affirmation from God that this is His will. We don't want to run ahead of God. God's response shows that this statement is an excuse. In verse 4, you'll notice verse 4, He compares His house with their houses. So you have paneled houses on one side, ruins on the other side. Your houses, my house. What do you make of this? They seem to have enough time to build their house while pleading a lack of time for God's. They seem to have enough money to make their houses paneled. Paneled suggests a little bit of luxury. I mean, these aren't just mud huts. I mean, this is paneling. This is knotty pine paneling. You know, so it's not just that they're building their own houses, but that they are spending effort to make it a good, to make it the best house. Put money into it. And God's house? Maybe it's not the time. So God is saying, maybe it's not an issue about timing as much as it is Priority. Which is more important? Panel in your house 
or my house. We need to remember that the very reason they had returned from captivity was to rebuild the temple. These are people who had been in Babylon, Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And now they have been allowed to return. 15 years earlier, they returned from Babylonian captivity. Babylon all of a sudden died. A new king came named Cyrus. Cyrus all of a sudden came up with this announcement that I'm sure came as a shock to the Jewish people that were in captivity. Here's his announcement. This is Ezra chapter 1. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor... In whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Is that clear enough? I mean, here God has done an unbelievable work of grace in Cyrus's heart. And Cyrus understands the fact that God wants that house rebuilt in Jerusalem. The very fact that these people were in the land was a testimony that it was time. It had been time for 15 years to rebuild the temple. The real problem was they had developed other interests. The priority of God's house had slipped. Other things gained importance. They weren't against building the house of God. They weren't against the temple. They were simply waiting. Ever met people like that? Yes, I believe in foreign missions. But with our economy as bad as it is, this may not be the right time to expand our missionary budget. I'm flattered that you think my talents might help in that particular church ministry. But perhaps later when the pressures of my life let up a bit or when I retire, it might be the right time. Yes, every Christian should be a witness where he lives and works. But with my co-workers, it's a delicate business. And it might not be the right time to talk about Jesus. I know I should give sacrificially. But with this economy, with my obligations, this just may not be the right time. You ever heard those kind of excuses? Nobody has. You ever use those excuses? <laughs> you know, maybe it's not a timing issue. Maybe it's a disobedience issue. Maybe the timing thing is an excuse that lets us cover up our real motivation by assuring us that we're still interested. 
that this is still important. You know, church is important. Prayer is important. God is important. Giving is important. While at the same time, in the back of our minds saying, but my job is more important. My house is more important. You know, is it more important to make another dollar or to get my heart right with God? Is it more essential to watch another TV program or to get rid of my sin? The real question is, what is most important? So the actions, the actions of these people showed that their statement was an excuse. They said they wanted to build God's houses, God's house, but their pen old houses were clear evidence that their hearts were not in it. They were disobedient to their commitment, to their, to their reason for leaving Babylon and coming back. They were disobeying their own commitment. The second thing Haggai says is that they weren't experiencing God's blessing. This is verses 5 through 11. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills, bring wood, build the house that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies yourself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills, on the grain, on the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all your labors. You see what's happened? Their blessings have disappeared. Look at the details in verse 6. Verse 6 has five contrasts. Five contrasts. Sown much, harvested little. Eat, never have enough. Drink, never have your fill. Clothe yourselves, no one's warm. He who earns wages, bag with holes. Verse 9. You looked for much, it came to little. You brought it home, I blew it away. Verse 10, the heavens above withheld the dew. The earth withheld. Ever felt this way? All your labor hasn't given you what you hoped for. Everything you reached for has eluded you. You feel like a porcupine chasing a balloon. Every time you get close, it disappears. 
Why? Verse 9, God asks that very question and answers it. He says, you look for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord, because of my house that lies in ruin. While each of you busies yourself with your own house. They were like people who took on extra jobs, who worked through lunch, who stayed at the office to work late, who were always rushing around to get ahead, to upgrade their houses, perhaps with new panels. Yet verse 9 says, when you brought it home, I blew it away. They were living in dissatisfaction, even in the middle of what looked like success. They were eating, they were drinking, they were putting on clothes, they had the necessity of life, but they didn't have the kind of life those necessities promised. They always longed for something to fill a vacuum. Ever been there? You know, that's American life. We have what, what looks like the good life, but something's missing. And God raises his hand and says, um, <clears throat> here I am. I'm the one. I've caused it. I'm, I'm orchestrating emptiness. You see this in verse 10. Verse 10 states the reason. I'm quoting from the NIV or the NASB. Verse 10 says, Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. Because of you, you have actually interrupted nature in its normal course. Or I have interrupted nature because of you. And verse 11 says, I have called for a drought. I have called for a drought. Hello, Weather Central. I would like for you to hold the rain on all zip codes for Jerusalem and surrounding areas for the next two months. Do you believe God does that? You know, we've been taught this mechanistic view of the world and nature. That everything runs sort of like a watch, you know. God wound the world up and it just runs like a watch. And so if something happens, it's connected to something over here because it all moves. So our rain in the last month and a half is caused by El Nino out in the Pacific, you know, or maybe it's caused by global warming. <laughs> Ever thought that maybe it's caused by God? That God dialed it up? This passage suggests that God does that. I don't think we can say that God does it today exactly like he did it in Haggai's time. So I don't think we can say that if we have a drought, which obviously we don't suffer, that it's your fault, or it's my fault, or it's 
fellowship's fault. But we can say that God personally chooses to use weather to work in our lives. How he does that, we don't understand. What's happening in the the weather today may not be global warming as much as it is global sinfulness. God's reaction to global sinfulness. He may use El Nino. He may use something else. But don't think that the weather is only a product of natural forces. We can somehow affect weather by our choices. So what this interaction demonstrates is that there is an unchanging principle that controls all of life. That people are constantly forgetting to their own emptiness. And that principle is this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The word first says that there is a priority in life. When that priority is right, all of these other things fall into line and are supplied. Food, money, clothes, houses, God supplies all of those when the priority is right. When we make the priority the food and the houses and the money, God's not in it. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is really commandment number one. Commandment number one says, you shall have no other gods before me. He is first. His righteousness, his kingdom is first. Sometimes I get distressed at Christmas time watching my grandchildren as they open gift after gift and present after present. And when our living room, which some of you know is fairly large, is filled with wrapping paper and almost every conceivable new toy, and all around are sitting eight or ten or twelve dissatisfied kids. You know? They opened the big box, they got the thing out, they played with it for 3.7 minutes. And now they're whining, complaining, fighting. You know, what's the problem? More toys. (laughs) That's what we need, more toys. No, the problem is priorities. Priority. Where do those toys belong on priority list? Perhaps we ought to think in terms of what toys we can give to another child that is missing any toys. Perhaps we ought to think of the greatest gift God has given. Perhaps we should focus on God's promise to supply all our needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. I think of that picture and then I wonder how often Christians can sit in the middle of a room full of gifts from God, dissatisfied. Going through the motions, you know, 
acting like like they're worshiping when their heart's not in it. When really what they need is God in their lives. God to be at work in their lives. Have you ever thought about the fact that God is intimately connected with every part of your life, even the weather? And that he may withhold what we normally expect to get us to stop and consider our ways. That's what's happening in Haggai. So the first thing Haggai said was, what was the first thing he said? Yes, you're using this as an excuse. The second thing he said is, you're missing out on God's blessing. The third thing he says, I've lost my power. There we are. Thanks. Third thing he says is blessing depends on making God's house their priority. The blessing depends on making God's house their priority. Here's verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. You need to realize that this was the remnant. This was the remnant. These were good people. The word remnant puts them in a category of those who love the Lord, of those who serve the Lord. Most prophets spoke to bad people. When you think of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and Joel and Amos and Micah, and Habakkuk, they were all talking to people who were the chosen of God and couldn't care less about God. And they were announcing the judgment was coming. And the ten tribes in the north, you guys are going to Assyria. And they went in 722. And Jeremiah's prophesying to the two tribes in the south. And he's saying, you're going to Babylon if you don't repent. And they went to Babylon in 605. But these are people who were in captivity and came back after 70 years. This is a different group. You remember Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and attacked it three different times. 605, he took a group of people. 597, he came back. 586, he came back and he was so mad that he sat there around the city for a year and a half until everybody starved and they started cannibalizing and he went in and tore the whole place apart burned Solomon's temple down tore the, wall, tore the walls down and so on and then all of a sudden in 586 Babylon disappeared in one night gone in one night that was the night when Belshazzar saw the handwriting on the wall you remember that Daniel chapter 5 Mini, mini, tikal ufarsen. Shazam, Belshazzar says, who can read this? Bring Daniel down. Daniel read it. It said, you're done. It's over with. He died that night. Cyrus came in with his army under the 
walls where the water was, Euphrates River, and took it over without a shot. So all of a sudden, the announcement that we read 15 minutes ago by Cyrus said, the door is open, you guys can all go back, and you can all go back and rebuild the temple. These are people who had quoted Psalm 137 when they were in captivity. Psalm 137 has a verse that says, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. So they're singing this psalm that says, Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, to be in Jerusalem. Now the door is open and they can go to Jerusalem. And guess what happens? They start singing Psalm 137 a whole lot quieter. They don't want to go back. So out of perhaps a million people in Babylon, we don't know how many were there, 50,000 go back. 5%. Probably less than that. And the ones that go back, go back to face ruins. No infrastructure. Dangerous environment. Most of the people decided to keep their homes, keep their jobs, keep their businesses, and stay in Babylon. So these are the special people. These are the people who launched out, who said, we will follow you wherever you go, no matter what. And what happened? They got back, they got to the land, began building the temple, set up the altar, began offering sacrifices, and then trouble. Trouble. Surrounding people started fighting them, Samaritans. You know, they had Cyrus on their side, but Cyrus died in a battle. And then his successor, Cambyses, didn't understand what was going on, and he was persuaded to order a work stoppage. So they quit. Now, 15 years later, they're still worshiping in the middle of Solomon's rubble. Even though they were special people. So Haggai says to them, do you understand the fact that obedience will bring the blessing of God? You obey, God will bless. I'm reading 12 to 15. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Notice the quick response. They obeyed. They feared the Lord. Now look at the promised result. The promised results are two, and they are incredible. Number one, God says, I am with you. The 
Have you ever had that assurance that God is with you? That God is in this? I am with you. You join me on this project of building my house. I am with you. What does it mean to walk with God? You know, you hear that statement about people who walk with God. Enoch walked with God. What does it mean to walk with God? It's very simple. It means you join God in his project. Jesus said to his followers, take my yoke and learn of me. My yoke. My work. Jesus said in that verse that we already quoted, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added. You know, we worry about the wrong things. More than saying, I'm going to make sure I make enough money, I'm going to make sure I have enough to eat, maybe we ought to say, I'm going to make sure I'm walking with God. The presence of God in in your life promises all the other things. The second blessing is in verse 14. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all the remnant. I take this to mean that God stirred up their excitement, God stirred up their motivation, God stirred up their strength, God stirred up their wisdom so they could get this thing done. You ever gotten home late at night or at night after a hard day of work and said, I just really don't have energy to go to church. I really don't think I can go to a Bible study tonight. You're missing out on this verse. You realize the fact that one of God's specialties is that he can stir up your strength. That God can give you energy. That God can can strengthen you in such a way that you can accomplish his priority. When you say yes to obedience. So what is the priority today? What is God doing today? What is he building I think this would be a perfect time to take an offering. Excuse me, Richard. Just thinking, you know, we ought to get this building built. We need $2 million. Why don't don't we take an offering right now? You know? The truth of the matter is that is not God's priority. That is important, but that is not God's priority. God's priority is this group of people right here. God's priority is people. People make up his church. Jesus said, I will be building my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And his church is not a cathedral down on Washington, on Massachusetts and Wisconsin. His church is a group of people. And he builds it as we meet together like this, as we worship him, and as we strengthen one another. So you find that all kinds of verses in the New Testament emphasize how we respond to one another. 
what we do with one another. So Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Think about why you came to church this morning. Why did you come? The normal American attitude is, I go to church to get. I'm going to church and I hope they bless me. I'm going to church somewhere where I get jazzed. I want to get inspired. These two verses are saying, you want to go to church to give. You want to go to church with target people that you can stir up to love and good works. People that you can encourage. So what happens in church includes not only what you put in the offering plate, but what you put into other people's lives. We grow as we contribute one to the other. So the searching question that Haggai asks here confronts us with this question. How can we find time to advance our interests so eagerly, so carefully, so thoughtfully, spending so much time thinking about our own material gain, and then excuse ourselves from the work of building the house of God by saying there just didn't time or this isn't the time to do it now. (coughs) Haggai says that may be what's making your life empty. And you may not have God saying I'm with you on your project. And you perhaps don't even understand what you're missing. So Haggai encourages us that even a small move of obedience is blessed by God. God blesses obedience. Where are your priorities? What is the most important thing in your life today? Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I close with this story, emphasizing that even small moves of obedience bring God's blessing. Jeffrey Schmidt tells the story of a a poor young orphan girl and an unknown woman. The young girl and her brother were orphaned due, due to a house fire that killed their parents. Not long after they entered the orphanage, the brother died of influenza. It was too much for the poor girl, for her psyche, and she lost touch with reality. This was at a time before modern psychology had made much progress, and the only thing they knew to do with this crazy kid was to lock her up like an animal in the basement. About this time, Dwight L. Moody came to town 
to hold an evangelistic crusade. He was the Billy Graham of his generation back in the 1880s and 1890s. Many came to hear him preach. Among them was a woman whose daily tasks included bringing this little girl her food and shoving it under the door. Moody's sermon encouraged people to make the kingdom of God a priority. He assured them that nothing was too insignificant when done in Jesus' name. The woman took these words to heart, and when she returned to work, she decided to add one thing to her duties. Instead of just leaving the food at the door, she began to sit outside the door and read the Bible aloud so the girl could hear. Over time, this simple act of kindness and the words of Scripture helped this little girl, Anne Sullivan, regain her sanity. For those who may not recognize the name, Anne Sullivan grew up to become the teacher of Helen Keller. A little girl who was both blind and deaf and couldn't speak. But because of the blessing Ann Sullivan added to her life, Helen Keller grew up to become a prolific author and a well-known public speaker. Helen Keller made this statement, which I thought was very apropos for Haggai. She said, I long to accomplish a great and noble task, but it is my chief duty to accomplish small tasks as if they were great and noble. How true this was for the unknown woman who read the Bible to a poor orphan girl. Little did she know the noble task she was accomplishing. I mentioned at the beginning that Helen Keller is buried at the Washington National Cathedral. I should add that the first woman ever interred there was Ann Sullivan. What a picture of the incredible work of God. To use a message of D.L. Moody to influence an unknown, unnamed woman to commit herself to help a poor girl who was locked into insanity, who was rescued so she could help a poor girl who was both blind and deaf, so that she could influence the world. You ever thought about the fact that God changed those, changed those same kind of events together today? He wants to do it in your life. He wants to do it in my life. As we make the kingdom of God and his righteousness our priority. Amen? Let's pray. Father, would you rescue us from spending our lives, from wasting our lives on things that are not that important. I pray that by your grace we might be able to sort out the stuff in our lives. And be able to say with the Apostle Paul, this one thing I do. 
Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.